everyone and welcome to a new special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm still alive, John. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm still alive as well. So it's been a while since our last episode, but of course we always kind of take a break between seasons and in the end of season three, we did that and we recorded a couple of specials and this is, I, th- I believe, the third special or either the second or the third special since... Uh, since uh, the end of the season, uh, I think our last episode was the best of the year, right? Yeah. Okay, so this is our next one, and you know, we'll, season four will inevitably come. It's just a matter of whenever we get ready and we sort out all our, uh, you know, other stuff. It like like we make we're not paid for this. This is purely a, a hobby project, so we you know it has to take a backseat to some other priorities occasionally. But you know, we'll keep uh, chugging along as usual. All right, so in today's special episode, for the second year in a row, Heroic Purgatory will cover the Osaka Asian Film Festival, which took place in March of 2023. Uh, as usual, we'll talk about the festival, what kind of films it has, the which films won the major awards, etc. Uh, and of course, as usual, the, the, the crux of our episode will consist of our favorite five films of the festival. In addition, this year, and this is something new for Heroic Purgatory, there will also be written reviews by me, John. Uh, that will be posted on the website, some of which have have been posted on or already there. Uh, if you go to the uh, front page, uh, it'll be the, the festival post, the main post, will, where the link for the podcast will be. And below that, there'll also be uh, short reviews. These are not complete reviews like I used to write for View Cinema, because I wanted to write them quicker and just kind of con- make a concise point about what I thought of the film and, uh, and so forth. Uh, but those will be on the website. And of course, as always, Jason will have full reviews on his website uh, as he progresses with them uh, for most of the films uh, for the festival, like he usually does. Um, okay, so we can jump straight into our main discussion for the episode. Uh, as we mentioned before, Jason, aside from covering the festival every year, and as you've done for many years now, you're also personally involved with the uh, Osaka Asian Film Festival in some capacity. So why don't you tell us about a little bit about that? Again, you've, you've said this before, but it, it's good to, to kind of give a summary every time we, we do these kind of coverages. So, you know, what's your role? What, what has your role been with the festival? And what is this festival about? What can you give us a, a brief overview of, about it? So Osaka Asian Film Festival is probably um, the premier film festival in Japan that introduces audiences to works, um, Asian-related works from across the world. And uh, audiences can see uh, films from anywhere, such as Poland, Philippines, America, um, the UK, uh, essentially anything that covers Asian lives from around the world. And um, this has been my seventh year um, on staff. And um, I tend to write the English language synopses and provide um, press support with press releases. Unfortunately, this year I wasn't able to attend, um, so I was doing everything remotely. Um, And also, I have to say that this year was the first time since the COVID-19 pandemic hit that guests were at the festival for Q&As and meet and greets. So I was really missing out on not being able to go to the festival and interview various directors. I was looking forward to um, uh, meeting up again with uh, a couple of uh, uh, familiar faces who I really get along with. And also being able to work um, uh, shoulder to shoulder with the staff there as well, because um, attending a festival and is always if fun. If I'm not mistaken, 
and maybe you can remind us, uh, this was, uh, did they do it in person last year as well? Or, or was this the first year that they returned to an in-person screening? So they've been in-person screenings, but no guests have been um, invited until this year. Okay, so they never went hybrid or online. Uh, they went the hybrid Osa last year with an online mini theater. That's what I thought. Okay, yeah. But uh, yeah, this year we had uh, many sold out screenings and um, it seems like audiences are coming out of hibernation for films in Japan. And uh, yeah, in terms of the program itself, uh, there were sequels to films that were popular in previous editions of the festival, such as um, Sister Sister 2. There were plenty of award winners, um, such as, uh, oh, uh, like there were like... Um, Films that have caught attention from critics and festivals. Um, and there was also a, a really broad focus on um, new filmmakers. We're talking about first and second time feature filmmakers, some actors making directorial debuts, and people sort of continuing to cut their teeth on short films. There was a lot of young talent on display. So, so some examples include Leave at Door, Bell X, a Korean short by actor Lee Joo Young who is the lead in Maggie and Baseball Girl. And uh, Haruna Tanaka, she had two shorts, um, Shall We Love You and Kanro. She's already made a couple of short films, but the two shorts she showed at the Osaka Asian Film Festival really uh, step up in quality. We had uh, Leonore Will Never Die, which set Sundance Film Festival on fire last year. And uh, that's a Filipino film from Matika Ramirez. And um, she made her directorial debut after a, a long career as a cinematographer. And another example is Daddy to Be, a Taiwanese short film by Pan Ki Yin, who I mentioned last year because he was at the festival with um, the short film My Sister. So there was a lot of uh, talent on display, um, lots of different subject matters, and um, a particular focus on youth stories as well. So yeah, um, this year's festival uh, featured many great films, um, and uh, yeah, I just wish I could have attended it, but uh, it was still a pleasure to be able to cover it, even though I'm on the other side of the planet. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, yeah, obviously a great festival, uh, and obviously you've seen more films from the festival. If any, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, you've seen all the films from a festival, right? Yes, just looking at the program, uh, I, I wrote about nearly every film apart from the uh, Katsuo Takahashi um, special presentation because I wasn't able to attend any screenings or get any screeners for that. But every other film I was able to watch. All right, so you definitely have a, uh, would have a will have a different perspective, a more complete perspective that is than I have. I was able to watch I think more films than last year. I was able to watch something like twelve or thirteen films. You know, due to time availability, of course, but also availability of screeners, uh, it's it's hard to get the screeners from uh, from every possible producer. But I, I think I was able to get all the ones that I uh, I was interested in, at least from reading uh, your descriptions on the website. Oh, cool! Uh, on the OF website, so I think I think I did I did get a good sample uh, of the festival. Unlike uh, what I tend to do on festivals, I did get to sample a, a bunch of short films. This year, and I, I think I, I uh, of course, spoiler alert, we'll get to the top five, to my top five about what I thought about some of the short films. But I think they, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the quality of some of the short films uh, that I saw that's on the festivals. I don't, I usually tend to avoid short films, not because I think less of short films, but because I sort of uh, uh, 
Uh, I see it as an efficiency or optimization problem. I'd rather watch as many features as I can uh, than shorts. But then again, shorts take a lot less time to actually get through. So yeah, uh, 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 there's, uh, there are ups and downs to both approaches. Uh, but all right, unless there's anything else you'd like to add about the festival, uh, anything else you think our uh, listeners should know about it, we can jump in straight to our top five, uh, to our respective top fives of the Osaka Asian Film Festival. What do you say, Jason? Yep, sounds good to me. Let's go. Let's do it. All right. So what was your number five? Right. Uh, I'm going to cheat um, like the scoundrel and cad that I am. Um, I'm going to put two in my number five spot, Hong Kong Family and The Narrow Road. Uh, this is, I, I don't know what to say about that, but uh, we'll, let it, we'll let it slide this time. So, like, these are solid dramas. They're not perfect. Um, there are some sort of um, drawbacks to the way the screenplays can be quite schematic or um, the way I didn't quite buy into some of the character development in Hong Kong Family. Um, but uh, I felt like these were very strong, truthful depictions of working class life on the island territory. And I really appreciated how restrained the drama was in both of the films. So The Narrow Road is by director Lam Sum, and essentially it follows uh, a middle-aged man named Chak, who's struggling to keep his cleaning company afloat uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, and he takes on a single mother named Candy, who's looking after a daughter. And um, this single mother, she's got uh, a penchant for wheeling and dealing and stealing. So she's quite dishonest. And that forms a massive contrast with Chak, who's a very upstanding, moralistic presence. And essentially, you're watching their relationship as they rub off on each other. And you kind of get the sense that, oh, they might uh, turn into sort of a patchwork family, but it doesn't quite develop that way. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, a film that's full of haunting images of Hong Kong um, as it shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but also because of other political factors, such as people emigrating for life in the West and also like f uh, fading living standards as well, because you're watching these characters go from business to business, from home to home, and you're seeing working class characters who are essentially forgotten about by society and struggling to live. And um, like these depictions of uh, people struggling were really moving, I found. And I also like the contrast between um, how working class characters, uh, working class life was depicted and how the rich and how they lived was, was depicted as well. Especially through the prism of the COVID-19 pandemic, where you saw rich people had an abundance of masks and cleaning supplies, whereas working class characters had to keep reusing and cleaning their own things. So okay, I this is, like, you're talking about the narrow road here. Yeah, the narrow road. Yes. So this is this is one that I did not see. I did see Hong Kong Family, but I was not able to see the narrow road. Well, this has actually um, gone on sort of uh, general release in the UK. There have been sort of. Um, various indie venues playing it yeah and it's it's also appeared it had gotten a, a significant number of nominations in the hong kong film awards we will mention later in our news segment uh, so it's certainly like a uh a, a film with some name some a name recognition beyond hong kong and certainly beyond the osaka asian film festival but it was hong kong family i was surprised that it, it seems to be a lot a lot more uh under the the uh, 
under the radar type of success. I don't know if we could call it success, but at least uh, marketing. I think like uh, the narrow road. Like last year, I complained about how so few films tackled COVID nineteen um, directly. Perhaps we're just too close to it. But I really appreciated um, the narrow roads um, look at COVID nineteen. So I'm I'm gonna give I'm gonna give a bit of legitimacy to your cheating and ask you to say if you had to pick one of these two, narrow road and Hong Kong family, which one would you pick? Uh, narrow road. Okay. Uh, I. Uh, Again, spoiler alert, I, I didn't see Narrow Road. Oh, I saw Hong Kong Family. It did not make it into my top five. I thought, like like you said, uh, at least speaking for Hong Kong Family, I thought there were interesting dramas. I liked I liked the subtlety with which they were they treated the sort of like the the main uh, source of the drama, which was the family discord. But if anything, I thought it was perhaps a little bit too understated. Like it it starts Hong the Hong the film Hong Kong Family starts explosively. Yeah. And then it's just it goes back into this quiet meditation about just people not speaking to each other, and it, it is an interesting scenario. But I kind of wish uh, someone pulled out another knife <laughs> somewhere in the middle of the film. It felt like it, it felt like anticlimactic compared to the way the film actually starts. I don't know. I find I find it quite realistic because when there's discord within a family unit, like sometimes the hardest thing to do is to talk, to actually communicate with each other. Yes, and I, I appreciated well that the film didn't offer any easy shortcuts, any catharsis on that level. It was just, okay, we'll agree to disagree, and try and move on with our lives. Well, I feel like I feel like uh, I mean, this is this was one of the earliest films that I watched, so it's been a while, it's been a few weeks. Uh, but I, I don't the son and father make up eventually in the end. There's never, there's never. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I was. Uh, there's nothing. Like definitive, no, like but there's that. almost like an under an understanding that you know, well, things will be okay from now on. Uh, that's that's how I interpreted the ending because the father m- moves away, right? Well, it's just acceptance that they have to be apart from each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it is it is that like it it has a horrifying opening. Like anybody who's ever been around domestic violence or in a violent situation will have their heart racing because when the parents explode it is truly terrifying and like there's a lot of drama there that i would have liked to have seen explored particularly the relationship between the parents because it was an arranged marriage as opposed to a love match and the two actors um Teresa Mo and um, uh, I think his name Se Quan Ho. Um, they're fantastic, just like being incommunicative and getting on each other's nerves. And like when it settles down into that sort of cold war, when they're sort of living together but not but not communicating, it felt very realistic. And like like the the development of the kids, obviously, you know, there's there's equal weight given to everybody's stories but i felt like the son's story um took too much space whereas i I wanted to know more about the parents and you know what was it that um drew them together and um how 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 would they resolve things is this uh let me is this the one with the video game the yeah the vr that that whole thing felt silly to me uh that's that's another problem that i I, that i think it was just extremely silly now I did not realize this until 
um, maybe a, a week ago or so that that actually is a thing in Japan uh, more than in China or Hong Kong where where there are videos of parents seeing their dead children in VR. Uh, it did not make it any less silly for me, but uh, but it was, uh, I don't know, it, it is a real thing. It is based on a real thing that has happened in recent years, in, in, um, certainly in Japan, maybe in other parts of Asia. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I think my issue of it was like the depiction of the VR itself felt way over the top because like real life VR isn't like that. Uh, of course yeah yeah so uh, of course that's 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 an issue i i kind of got over that part because you know i i chuck it down to budget issues yeah they probably can't hire a real vr programmer or vr team to actually do it in a way that's realistically they just did it in simple cgi that's that's it i'm just i'm just kind of fatigued by ai this ai that's and uh meta this meta that like the tech bros in silicon valley can just go away as far as i'm concerned but um, like the the fundamentals of the drama were really strong, um, and like the depiction of people actually having to learn to communicate but never quite reaching it, um, I felt was really affecting. Okay, and uh, yep, yeah, those were my uh, number five selections. All right. Um, there was uh, so my number. Like I said, I've seen a Hong Kong family. There's nothing objectively negative like i like you said it is a well done drama but there were enough little minor elements that eventually added up to me not not rating this as high as as you did and not enough to make it to my top five so my actual top my actual number five is the japanese film you are still here you are still there after the rain directed by pan yunhua uh, which doesn't sound like a Japanese name. I don't know if you can uh, uh, elaborate, if you can uh, shed any light on that. Uh, from China. I would say, is there any background info regarding why he made a Japanese film? Is he an immigrant in Japan or something like that? Yeah, it's a gay dai film, I believe. And um, A what? Gay, uh, Tokyo University of the Arts. Um, oh, I see. So it's a graduate school where you find um, students from across Asia actually go and attend. And um, so Pan is a musician and filmmaker who's originally from China. And um, he's made a bunch of short films at the Graduate School of Film and New Media. And uh, yeah, so, and, right. uh, I think a lot of the crew as well come from across Asia. Yeah, and I was uh, not I'm not surprised that this is a, a this is a student film, student in quote, because, you know, it was it was very well done but there were a few hints in the cinematography a few inconsistencies in the cinematography that sort of like betrayed the uh perhaps unprofessional and i don't mean that in negative step just uh, just in the fact that these are not seasoned filmmakers uh that sort of like betrayed a few inconsistencies in the cinematography but i thought nevertheless the story and more of like the absurdist uh, presentation of the story i found it very inspiring and very beautiful uh, and it's one of those a sixty-minute films that uh, that have a runtime of sixty minutes that seems to be unique to Japan. I don't know many other countries where, uh, like, sixty or seventy-minute minute feature films are as common as they are in Japan. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a. It seems to be a market for those kind of films there. Perhaps it's more more on the indie or student side, but they nevertheless exist. And the film centers about uh, a, a young girl whose name is Irina. Uh, who is who lives in a coastal uh, town with her father, 
and uh, seems focused on nothing else uh, except painting and creating these artificial worlds uh, in her paintings. Uh, and one day, this uh, older lady shows up on her door, and uh, despite being initially cold, Irina befriends her, uh, and they slowly connect with each other, revealing each other's pain and and uh, an existential ennui. If I if I had to put exactly into words what it is that they share with each other, but I, I absolutely love this film. I love the cinematography. There's a pastel quality to the to the image uh it feels like it it's it's the, the everything in the world that surrounds them Irina the old lady whose name I don't know if it, if it's ever mentioned uh in the film it feels like it is straight out of the paintings of the little paintings that the the little girl uh does and you can see by the way the dialogue is presented it's very Beckettian in the sense that it reminds it reminds like of uh, it's like watching waiting for Godot, except it's a little girl in in a in a Japanese coastal town, uh, and you can get like from like the sometimes nonsensical dialogue, you get a lot about you know the really the the true state of mind of this girl and how lonely she is. Like for example, one example that stood out to me was when the father, who seems to be constantly at work, and uh, he goes back and has dinner with a girl, but but he's strangely absent in most of the scenes. Uh, and when he sees her painting and says, wow, you've gotten really good, which highlights that even her father doesn't really know her uh, as well. He's dressed up as a day laborer. So you can imagine that he's spending a lot of time on building sites. And then he gets back home and he's exhausted. His daughter's made his food. So there's not much interaction beyond that sort of dinner table. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like that's that sort of seemed to be and and ironically that's before the old lady shows up that is her only connection to world outside of her paintings to arena's uh connection to the real world is only her father until he she meets the old lady but even the old lady seems to be not of this world there is there is an otherworldly quality to to arena herself and her interactions with other people which is in the film it's mostly her father and the old lady who seems she's old initially but then kind of it warms up uh, as the film goes on. Uh, very, uh, like I said, it's it's the, the half of the film's merit has to go to like the cinematography and the style, uh, and the story itself. I'd say it's relatively simplistic, but I think it goes well with the abstract nature of the film. Yeah, it's a film that aches with loneliness, and it was actually quite heartbreaking to watch um, the interactions between the two characters and the lack of resolution at the end. Yeah, she reveals. There's a a final conversation in the end where she reveals, um, and it's not really a revelation. I forget what exact line of dialogue is, but she says something about why she cries or something like that. I don't know if you remember the the exact what she says to the old lady when they are in the museum. No, I um, I the one line that uh, I remember is the old lady saying, "When you get to my age, you start saying goodbye to people." Yes, yes, yes. So, so it's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, beautiful, but also bittersweet and uh, uh, heartbreaking lines in the film. Uh, it's it, like I said, there's, it's a it's a deeply flawed film, and and the fact that he was made as a student film is is makes a lot of sense. But it nevertheless has a has a strong heart about it that makes it made it very endearing, at least for me. Uh, all right, and that is uh, my number five. So uh, my number four is Sekai by Marina Tsukada. It's a 38-minute short film that played in the indie forum section. I, I, I unfortunately did not watch this one. 
Yeah, it actually played at the Rotterdam International Film Festival uh, back in January, February this year. So I was kind of intrigued by it. And um, it's it ended up uh, making me cry <laughs> a couple of scenes. Essentially, you've got um, a story set in uh, Nagano Prefecture, and it follows a junior high school student named Aki and uh, a musician named Yumi. Uh, Yumi's like in her 30s and um, she's struggling to decide a path in life whereas Aki, um, the student, she's got a stutter and she tries to keep a low profile in school and um, yeah it's a film that's done with long takes and um, uh, close-ups on the actors and um, you really get a sense of their inner worlds because the camera's concentrating on them and you're seeing them sort of hesitate um, delivering dialogue or struggle to interact with people. And it's one of those films where it's kind of like you're reading between the lines what's not being said um, and how they're struggling to just get along with, with um, others. And um, there are many, many, many beautiful shots of the scenery and the characters in it. Um, and also, like, so you, you can get a sense of them in the world and their struggle to be a part of it. And, uh, yeah, just, like, holding um, long takes on these characters and um, having close-ups, you can see all sorts of details of the lights and, like, dust motes flying around. And um, just being able to enjoy looking at faces. So, like, um, one scene that, whenever I think about it, makes me tear up is uh, Aki talking to a grandmother. and. She's had a very sort of um, tough experience at school. And um, yeah, so she's like trying to um, gather her thoughts, regain her courage. And one of her hobbies is reading books. And she just has this moment where she's speaking slowly. And um, because, you know, she has a problem with her stutter. And um, she's trying to relay to her grandmother uh, what her day's been like. And she's trying to find a positive. And she just leaves through a book and she said to her grandmother, oh, one moment, please. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is making me quite upset, actually. Yeah, it's, it's she, she just, she spends the time gathering her thoughts and it's just a simple line. And she says, do you know, the world is cool. And it's kind of like, despite her setbacks, she's still got that optimism about her. And it's kind of like, it's one of those films where all of these directorial techniques take you into the inner world of the characters so you understand sort of their emotions and uh, a lot better than the people who are in the lives around them and um yeah it's just like those moments of optimism really jump off the screen then um and it culminates in the end where um two characters are on they live in the same building but they don't realize it and aki the students humming a song that reminds Yumi of um, her youthful days. And it's like a brief connection, but it's one that's filled with hope. And it turns out to be an uplifting uh, moment in the film. It's kind of like, no matter how tough things are for the two characters, that they'll keep going. And I find that quite, I find the film beautiful to look at, but also uplifting as well. All right. And uh, I should probably let the audience know that you have a bit of a sore throat. So that's why you're uh, your voice sounds different, but that in combination with uh, you getting emotional about this film made for quite the uh, the soundbite. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a film that like it takes its time, and um, I like audiences may be put off; they may find it soporific. 
but I find it absolutely absorbing. And if you've got the patience for it, um, you might find it an emotionally rewarding film. This was one that I, I wanted to watch based on, uh, uh, on the description, but I, unfortunately I was not able to. Oh. Well, hopefully all you right. can in a, another festival. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Uh, all right, so my number four was the Taiwanese film Day Off, uh, directed by, uh, by Fu Tianyu. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. And it is, uh, centers on uh, the, the story of a, an aging hairdresser uh, who, uh, and her relationship with her grown-up kids, some of which, one of which has followed in her, step and become, in her steps and become a hairdresser herself, uh, are divorced. Some of them are uh, uh, fall into uh, a bunch of quick, uh, get-rich-quick schemes, etc. But the, the, the heart of the drama uh, of this film is about the relationship of the main character, whose name is Arui, and her, let's say, slowly disappearing clientele, particularly one who is dying and has moved away from the city. And I believe the city of the, the city in the film is Taipei. Is that correct? Uh, it's an old-fashioned area of Taichung. One of, one of her daughters lives in Taipei. Okay. Yes, but it's, it's close by, let's just say. So she has, to drive, uh, she has to drive to the village where one of her uh, elderly, one of her former regulars lives and give him a haircut on his deathbed and that uh, gets her quite emotional and uh like the majority of the film is like like my actually my previous film this is a, largely an existential reflection on the meaning of life and sort of like the way that this particular character sees her life through uh through the lens of her profession in fact the the word times time flies is mentioned so many times in the film like oh, pretty much every character at one point says well time flies all her regulars she herself says it a bunch of time her daughters and her son says it at one point another another observation that is made very common is how she recognizes the back of people's head uh a lot better than she recognizes the front of people's heads uh the front of like the faces of people which i thought is quite amusing but it, it is it is a reflection of her life her reaching an age where her her kids no longer need her or no longer she is no longer able to to control her kids to guide them through through life uh is it has forces her to sort of like reflect on what what is the meaning of her life and what is what is uh what is that she can accomplish in in her uh in at this stage of her life and the only means that she knows how to interpret the complications, the complicated nature of human existence is through the art of hairdressing. And she's a very traditional hairdresser. She doesn't do all the uh, the bells and whistles that the more modern hairdressing of, uh, business of her daughter does. Uh, she's a very traditional... I was surprised that they do men, because usually, uh, usually, like a lot of these do mostly women, at least in the US. I don't know, maybe perhaps Taiwan is different. Yeah, there's salon culture and barbershop culture, and in the Western looked, world, her her shop looked more like a barbershop. Yeah, and in flashbacks, you can see she's under the tutelage of a of an older man. You you could easily replace a lot of her. Uh, I I wrote a note in in my notes. I wrote a little like half half joke, but half true that this is follows the style of a kung fu film of a traditional kung fu film because she. 
she has this whole philosophy around her haircutting, uh, around judging people based on on the her through the lens of her profession, uh, much like like a Shaolin master would interpret life through their martial art. And then she has this kind of very like uh, uh, high authoritative figure that they put on the pedal. So that was her master, much like a, a martial arts expert would have their uh, uh, their master. Uh, uh, much would have their master on a pedestal. So it, it is kind of sort of like follows the basic, on a very fundamental level, the formula of a Kung Fu or a, martial art, or a Hong Kong martial arts film. I actually got um, Shades of Departures from this. But, um, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I wrote that down too. I wrote that down. It reminds me of Departure, yes. Especially the scene where she cuts off uh, her old regular's hair in his deathbed and the, the entire family cries around her. Yeah, and you get flashbacks, and um, also like the dedication to a craft and to serving a community as well. Yes, absolutely. Did you notice that the music might have come from Drive My Car? I did not notice that. Uh, if not Drive My Car, there's a lot of similarities to it. Who's the composer? Do you happen to know? Was Maybe it it's the Eiko same Ishibashi? Yeah, Eiko Ishibashi, Drive My Car soundtrack. So it's the same composer, right? I'm. Uh, I'd have to rewatch the film, but I definitely got drive my car vibes from oh, the. So Shibashi, you you confirmed that to be the composer of Drive My Car. I thought you were looking yeah. up the composer of uh, Day Off. Oh no, no. I'm trying to see it, but there's not a lot of information on this film. Not definitely not a. Oh no, I did. Uh, it, uh, one page it says uh, the the person responsible for music is a person named Baby Chung. So not, but maybe they just, you know, uh, in quotes, paid homage to it. <laughs> All right. But I, like I said, it's, it's a fantastic film. I, I enjoyed it very much. It, it didn't quite make me cry, but it did definitely get a bit emotional on the on that one scene that you mentioned that is uh, seems to, to borrow quite a bit from uh, Departures. I did, again, at times, the, the certainly the scenes where the main character is not present feel like you're being uh, feel like there is a drop in quality. I think this film only works because of the main character is not only the acting, but also uh, the creation, the writing of that main character um, is just fantastic. Everything else felt perhaps a little bit more secondary, uh, a bit a bit more tropey, a bit less interesting, like the, the struggles of her family outside uh, uh, outside of the main character, like the ticket that she gets with uh, uh, one of the daughter discovers that her boyfriend is cheating, the other is divorced and doesn't get along with a mechanic, with her ex-husband who is a mechanic, who whose problems seem to be... I'm not, I wasn't even sure what their problem was. She hates that he works too much. Uh, that he's too kind-hearted and soft he's on too, people. Yeah, it, it's, it, seemed, it seemed a bit... A bit Contrived. drama for drama's yeah drama's sake to me so yeah so I think I think it's great that the film is pretty much spends the, its entire time focusing on the main character but the few moments that it doesn't it felt like a noticeable drop of quality yeah in quality yeah as as a sort of uh, pan to sort of being dedicated to a craft and the passing of time and how everything eventually fades away it's very effective. 
and uh, like the other perfunctory drama that leads into sort of like these passages where you see the kids growing up and going their own ways and like the mother lamenting how the youngsters don't listen to old people anymore. Uh, you, you know, that's fine as part of the build-up, but we're, we're really there to follow Aoi's journey and um, see how she treats her clients and get that sort of emotional impact when she reunites with them. Absolutely. All right, so that was my number four, Day Off. What is your number three, Jason? Ooh, uh, my number three is uh, The Burden of the Past. And, Another uh, one that I did not uh, watch, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really um, it's directed by Atsushi Funahashi. And um, he's a filmmaker who's worked in documentaries and dramas. And um, he has a background in attending um, film school in New York as well. And uh, he's a graduate of Tokyo University. Um, and uh, I don't know if you've seen any of his films, but they include Big River, um, Nuclear Nation 1 and 2, Cold Bloom, Lovers on Borders. I don't think so, no. And Company Retreat. Lovers on Borders is a really sort of ambitious film shot in Portugal and Japan, um, set in different time periods. His last film, Company Retreat, um, from 2020s, uh, black and white sort of um, drama mentary based on a sort of real life sexual harassment incident at a hotel and the, work, uh, the sort of the impact the trauma had on them. Um, the workers uh, when they had to confront that issue and um I, he seems to have taken a sort of similar tone with the burden of the past which is uh, another sort of docudrama this time based on um uh the uh magazine a magazine called change which um tries to rehabilitate former prisoners and um give them a chance of uh, rejoining japanese society and um i found like the film is really a mixed bag because on the one hand, like the acting and the writing are really rough around the edges. You get the sense that there's a lot of workshopping this and um, it's, there's a lot of contrivances with the ways um, like the former criminals are set up essentially to fail. Um, to get back into society where they keep meeting obstacles usually of their own making because they reveal too much of their past to strangers or um, something along similar lines. But uh, having those constant examples of people trying and failing to get back into society and seeing the prejudice that they face became really affecting and it all culminated uh, like the structure of the film is essentially a year in watching this um, charity try and get these ex-prisoners back into society and helping them through a theatre project. And the film culminates in like a theatre performance where members of the community are invited to watch uh, a stage play that the uh, ex-criminals have put together. And um, it just explodes into this horrible um, argument where... Um, regular citizens are castigating the former criminals saying, how can we trust you? And it's really heart-rending stuff, especially after you've watched like an hour and a half of people trying and failing to sort of reintegrate into society. So whatever reservations I had about sort of rough acting and sort of uh, script contrivances really flew out the window because at that point with the stage performance, I was, I was like really on tenterhooks. I understood um, all of the issues on hand, and 
I really felt for the characters. And I felt like this film had so much going on in terms of substance that it could travel to festivals around the world and it can show audiences like just how um, difficult it is to rehabilitate former prisoners. And I'm surprised it didn't win the Japan Cuts Award because there's just so much that it leaves you thinking about afterwards. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does sound interesting. I, I forget if this was one that I requested or not and didn't come, but, but yeah, it's, it, it, it does sound like it is a, a mixed film uh, in the true sense of the, world, of the word, where it has uh, was rough around the edges, but there's a, a strong core heart about it that kind of makes it pummel through the rough edges and, and deliver a strong message. Yeah, essentially, it's like the failure rate of uh, recidivism in Japan. It's like a 50% failure rate of uh, rehabilitating former criminals. And it's kind of like Atsushi Funahashi's thesis is like, if people face prejudice, if people keep facing rejection, then of course, this is going to keep happening. And we see this storyline where a mysterious stranger shows up in town and they're cagey about their past. And um, they're trying to, and they get along with people, but all of a sudden it's revealed that they've got a criminal background. And we've talked uh, about uh, Miwa Nishikawa's Under the Open Sky with Koji Yakusho, where it's an ex-Yakuza trying to go straight. And we're following his um, sort of uh, saga as he's trying to reconnect with a mother he never knew. Um, actually, it, this uh, burden of the past is based on real life stories. And like, I, like having that sort of firm background based on reality really gave it power. At 125 minutes, it sounds like it's a long film, but it actually flies by pretty quickly because the sort of directorial style is um, fast and you, you've got handheld cameras doing close-ups on the characters and you've got all of these different um, storylines going on. So you're cutting between different characters. So it it just pummels its way through the story until you get to this really climactic stage play and that is probably one of the most standout um dramatic moments i've seen in films this year so far all right all right great uh so my number three is a bit of a controversial choice but i put like and share in that spot okay uh and i felt very conflicted about this because there are a lot of things about this film that i liked and a lot of things that i didn't like i think I think had it not, spoiler alert, had it not won the top award in the festival, I probably would have not put it into, uh, into my top five. But in the end, I felt like it was, you know, even though I have a lot of problems with the film, um, uh, I, I thought that it, it did a, enough of good stuff that it, it merited a, a position in my top five. Uh, just to give a quick summary of the film, it's a, the story of two friends, Lisa and Sarah, if I remember uh, my in the names correctly. I'm I'm terrible with names. Who live in Jakarta, and also the film was directed by by Gina Snor, a relatively young director in Indonesia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, Lisa and Sarah have an AS ASMR YouTube channel. It's not YouTube in the film, but it's essentially YouTube. Uh, I thought I thought it was funny how they use different names for major brands uh, in the film. Um, like the, the YouTube is something else, unless it's a real thing in, in Indonesia, I don't know, but I, I felt like it was just a, a way to bypass copyright uh, laws and just uh, have a YouTube uh, replacement in there. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, I'm digressing. Uh, so the two uh, like uh, are, are best friends and they plan to do everything together. They even plan 
uh, to their future together by making sure they end up in the same city for their studies. However, things sort of begin to go wrong where uh, when Lisa becomes obsessed with a, a particular porn video by a porn actress, by an amateur actress, which I believe it is revenge porn, uh, and uh, Sarah uh, gets uh, an older boyfriend who, even though uh, appears to be nice in the beginning, ends up being quite abusive for her. And uh, though they separate initially, they eventually come back together to face their problems together uh, in life and in their uh, ASMR uh, YouTube channel. So, I mean, it's it's the, the, the one positive or the main thing that I could say about this film. It is a fun film. Uh, it flies. It's it's almost two hours. It's not quite two hours. I think it was like 110 minutes or so. But it flies by really fast, like what you described in your previous film. And despite its its bleak subject matter, at some points, uh, you know, like uh, porn addiction. Although I'm not quite sure that it is porn addiction what is depicted in the film, but something close to that. Uh, rape, even it goes that far. Uh, abuse, uh, uh, blackmail. It's still a relatively lighthearted film for most of its runtime. And it has, I wrote, I wrote this in my review, it has a deliciously ironic ending, uh, which is, I, I thought, the perfect ending for, for a film like, like this. And spoiler alert is what they do is they, uh, they record a new uh, ASMR video where they read the comments of, uh, uh, the comments on their uh, YouTube channel, and some of them are supportive, but some of them are just people being trolls on the internet, which is what the internet is. And I thought that was so perfect, such a perfect representation of what it is to live in uh, the online world of today. Some some things that I didn't like is particularly how on the nose the film was was for most of the things. Like whereas we talked about Hong Kong fam family being a very understated and subtle drama, which I usually tend to like. Like and Share has the subtlety of a brick in the face when it comes to the <laughs> issues that it tries to uh, tries to depict, which is perhaps uh, perhaps that is okay. You know, when you perhaps some people feel that when you talk about significant issues like the treatment of women in Indonesia or all over the world, but let's just stick to Indonesia because that's where the film is from. Uh, some people say that perhaps you it's better to be direct for things like this, but I always maintain that subtlety is better because you can. Uh, you can, you it elevates the drama to a higher level, and it allows it allows a, a more rich discussion about the issues that are being discussed, as opposed to just telling the audience, "Oh, this is what's happening, this is the message." Period. Um, other things, I, I thought I thought the third act was a bit abrupt. So the, the film, it's almost like part of the third act is missing. It's like there is the the process of her trying to get things right, and then the it never we never get closure. The film just kind of ends with them getting back together and recording that final uh, ASMR call, ASMR video. Uh, there are also things that I, that I didn't, uh, I guess there might be sort of like a culture uh, disconnect here, but the, I never quite understood why Lisa and her mother are so afraid of their stepfather, of, of uh, Lisa's mother, husband. He's like, like this tiny man who's not even barely shown on camera. He mostly, whenever he's shown, he just kind of sits in the corner uh, but they all, like every time they talk about him, they like they sound terrified. I I just I just took it as you know being part of a patriarchal society, having remarried. Um, a mother's probably 
having to be extra cautious, especially since she's bringing her daughter into the relationship. And so, you know, that feeds into sort of like the moral panic that you find around the sort of the pornography in the film and also the generational divides between the characters. Yeah, but I, I just think they handled that terribly. They chose a terrible actor because that actor inspires the actor that they chose to play the stepfather inspires absolutely no fear. Uh, like I said, he's the most non-threatening male actor that you could have picked to to to, to, to play that role. And also, I don't, I don't, I, like they could have uh, again. It's the 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 concept of show don't tell. They're just telling the uh, the audience that the 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 that this is a patriarchy. At least in that instance, they show it in other ways, which is good. That's the part of the film that I like. But this particular, like the relationship, because I understand that, like a male in a patriarchy, the best, the the worst thing you can do is disappoint the male figure of the family. Like, and I, I think that's what, like you said, that's what the the film is trying to, to to do it. But it just tells us that in that particular subplot, it doesn't show it. It just, it, yeah. like I said, the, the father hardly even enters. The stepfather hardly even appears on screen except for occasionally in the corner sometimes uh, i just thought that part could have uh, could have been handled better um uh it just it just uh, i was confused every time like they talk about it. like why are they afraid of this guy that, that's it's always confusing and then of course if you think about it it makes sense but it makes sense in a in an intellectual sense when you when you have you analyze the film as opposed to getting that emotional instant reaction which it, which i think was what's a good film should do yeah, it's, it's 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 essentially a it's a solid melodrama. Um, the a thing, melodrama. Uh, that's that's what I wrote in my review as well. It it is a melodrama with a capital M E L O. Yeah, it's captured that sort of teenage tone that the two characters are going through, and it's explicit about pointing out all the difficulties that uh, women uh, face online. Uh, so this is a universal film as well because revenge porn and all sorts of horrible stuff happen around the world. And uh, yeah, like one of the things I really appreciate about the film is that it doesn't pass judgment on how characters express themselves online, but just shows how people have adapted in a fairly realistic way to social media and how technology has inveigled their way, inveigled its way into everybody's life to the extent that younger people are very comfortable giving up their privacy and, um, you know, putting everything on TikTok and so forth. So it's kind of like... There is a schematic element to the story. You can see, like, oh, this character's going to run into this trouble at some point. This character's this it's going to be vulnerable to blackmail, revenge porn, and so forth. But it felt uh, realistically depicted. Uh, yes, yes. So that I think I think the technology aspect of the film, and perhaps they benefit from having a relatively young director who understands this stuff. It was, I think, very realistically depicted. The the not only that, but sort of like the, the the profound understanding that the the girls have of what is the role of technology, and that it is it is both anxiety inducing, but also anxiety relieving. Like several times the film, they say they cannot fall asleep without listening to the ASMR, and this is true in general. They make that statement as a general statement, but also it's true for the characters themselves. It it also offers them that sort of freedom to live independently that they can't get in their home situations as well. And yeah, you know, I, there are many times where uh, you know I don't understand ASMR. I'm, I'm a bit too old for that. I don't understand VTubers or the popularity, but I do understand that you can make a, a ton of money from it. So it's kind of like the film depicts that 
I mean, I don't understand how anybody can make money by just going on Twitch and playing a video game for 10 hours every day. But it's it clearly does, it true. It doesn't seem healthy. <laughs> Th- those are millions. I mean, these are millions, but I don't understand. I'm not old. Like I am of that. It is my generation. I belong to the generation. I don't understand. I don't understand, you know, like sending uh, people like uh, risque photos of yourself to anybody. Like it, it, I wouldn't even fathom it. Like I would be so afraid. Well, that's one of the beauties of this film, which shows that like the normalization of these parasocial relationships and of these dangerous behaviors because social media and the way people has fundamentally changed the way people interact with each other. And, and, and one thing that perhaps I would slightly criticize, and this is a very subtle difference that it's perhaps uh, more personal than objective. uh, But I think the one, the one, place where I, I thought the film failed a little bit. Like I said, it does a very good job at depicting the technology realistically and also properly to the to the times we live in. But it still made the source of the evil a human agent. That thinks everything went wrong because there was one bad guy that took advantage of this girl. It did not depict it as an inherent problem of the technology itself which is i what i personally believe in it's not like facebook is not destroying democracy because there are a few people that are using facebook to destroy technology the nature of facebook and facebook don't sue me i'm using facebook as a <laughs> as a as a placeholder for all for a lot all social media of the kind uh it, it is an inherent problem with that technology and with that kind of social media that is causing this kind of harm. And I, I, I feel like the film, perhaps intentionally, not, not certainly intentional, but perhaps, you know, it could have, I think, could have addressed because it is the, it was what the story was about. But then instead, it felt to me like a little bit of a cop out. To, again, it's one human agent that was the source of all problems, not the, 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 the technology itself. It does tackle a bit of the culture. So it does, it does handle the culture. It does handle and also the, the sort of legality around it as well. The, the legality, but not the technology itself, which is, a, if not the most ma- the major source of the problem, a big part of it. Uh, do you do you think that uh, might be partly addressed in sort of the naivety of the main characters? Because I think as that's audience part of members, the culture. That is the culture, the cultural part of it. Yeah, as as audience members, we can see exactly where the problems are going to arise. That that's 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 uh, yeah. So that's that's something that made me, and that's another reason why, despite so m- the many problems that I have, I include in my top three because it certainly makes you makes you interested. It, it raises it raises the awareness, which is perhaps what uh, what the film's main main uh, goal was to raise awareness, and it does that su- very successfully. Yeah, you could show this in a school. You could show this in a school or a community center anywhere around the world where there's the internet, and people will immediately understand it because essentially the stakes are the same everywhere absolutely uh but uh, based on what you said just before this uh it made me wonder do do other people see it the way that we did where we definitely saw the problems a mile away uh but we're like like we just admitted we're not there are many parts of this culture that seem very foreign to us like we don't understand what the big deal with asmr is or we don't understand like I'm because of my work because I work with computers I'm I'm with computers all day so I definitely understand addiction to technology but I don't understand sort of some of the behaviors around it like uh, addiction to social media or ASMR or uh uh 
sending sending nudes to each other. Like to me, that seems unfathomable. But to, to the people, the people that belong to this subculture where these behaviors are normalized, do you think they will see these problems depicted on the film the same way that we do, or predict them before they happen? Like that's when you just see what Sarah is doing. You say, "Oh boy, that's that's not going to end well for her." Do you think other people? would have the same reaction if they are also part of the culture that participates in this kind of behavior. You'll probably get a broad range of reactions. You'll probably find like uh, some people take a f- will regard it as moral panic and uh, just be quite relaxed about it and say, well, people surely can't be that naive. But uh, social media has fundamentally changed how we communicate with each other. Like Twitter, people communicate the way people communicate on Twitter has infected real life. Essentially, we can no longer it's no longer an objective reality. We're bringing our online lives into um, real life, essentially. So you're just going to get a whole range of reactions to and, it. And I wrote in my review that I think it's important to always keep in mind that the benefits of technology, in my opinion, outweigh the harms in it. But the harms are big. You know, the internet has done wonderful things, but it's also have has done a lot of terrible things and and part of it might be because of how fast we've just adapted to it how fast we've not adapted but how fast we've uh em- embraced it. it 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 all comes down to better regulation essentially yeah yeah i mean that's a lot of people have made this argument that the advance of technology has not proceeded has not uh moved at the same speed as the advance on the laws surrounding technology well, it's it's kind of like um, last week we had um, the CEO of TikTok um, in front of Congress, and like a lot of people were pointing out that the questions he was being asked were ridiculous. Like the, a lot of these people, these politicians, are so disconnected from the online world and uh, how to regulate it that it's just a, 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 a essentially a show trial when they should be investigating Silicon Valley just as much. Uh, yeah, but I think I don't know I, that that is that was weird for me because it's not like the politicians write the question themselves. They they probably have young staffers who write the question. So I think that was well, just and a, also also um, different business people as well who want to try and get one over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just a I'm a big favor of banning TikTok, but I'm also in favor of of regulating everyone else in in addition to TikTok. Essentially, uh, everything needs better regulations, whereas environmental absolutely. protection or social media. I mean, it's crazy to me that TikTok is more more regulated in China than it is in in the Western world. Uh, right? Yeah. Every everything needs <laughs> regulations. Anyway, I mean that that's besides the point. But yeah, so like I said, a, a wonderful film, a fun film, but also a very frustrating film in in some aspects, which which I kind of wish it wasn't because it, it, it it's such a such a such a creative idea that uh that perhaps deserved to win the top prize i i kind of i kind of predicted that it would it seemed like obvious that uh, just like you know some movies are obvious oscar bait this felt uh this felt to me like very clear award bait um yeah it's got the uh, substance and the presentation absolutely absolutely and the cinematography i thought was great i thought it was a great idea to sort of make it look like a tiktok video like an instagram video not all not the entire film but certain parts of it yeah, the candy colors and yeah, uh, exactly yeah, framing. Exactly. All right, but anyway, uh, we talked enough about this for now. Uh, that was my number three. So, Jason, what is your number two? 
Okay, so it's getting really difficult now because there are three films I really liked from this festival. Don't, please tell me you're not going to cheat again. I'm not going to cheat. Um, I'm going to put December as my next one. Uh, so, another film that I just couldn't get. I tried to get. I'm pretty sure I tried to get this one, but I couldn't. So it's the third feature film from Anshul Chauhan, who's an Indian director who uh, lives and works in Japan. Uh, he originally got starts uh, doing CG uh, for movies. And then he made short films, um, and his first feature film was Bad Poetry Tokyo, and he followed that up with Contora. And like these are really sort of stunning dramas where he works intensively with cast and crew to drag out raw performances. Like he'll really put the um, cast through the ringer, essentially trying to get uh, trying to get like uh, honest performances from tough situations. And um, December is essentially um, uh, ex-husband and ex-wife getting back together again to confront uh, a court case where um, their daughter's killer um, is uh, looking to get a retrial because um, her solicitor has new evidence that he wants to submit to the court because he thinks the original sort of sentence was too harsh. And what happens is you find out that the killer was put through a horrific process of bullying and she had a terrible home life, essentially. But um, it's a film about finding forgiveness because like, the ex-husband, uh, played by Shogun, he's an alcoholic who's lost in a haze of rage and um, alcohol. And um, he just refuses to sort of um, countenance the idea that the killer uh, could have any extenuating circumstances, um, any any excuse for what she did. And the mother, um, who's played by uh, Megumi, um, she's trying to move on with her life, but she's still sort of dogged by uh, regrets about how she's raised, how what happened to her daughter, what happened to her family. And then you've got the killer herself, who's obviously... Um, as a teenager, she killed and she's been in prison since then and she's trying to rebuild her life, but she knows uh, that it's going to be really hard because she's got a criminal record. And you're watching this trial go on where you've got this wily lawyer or solicitor representing the killer and he's bringing all of this evidence, new evidence into court and he's framing the parents in uh, new and different ways. And it constantly gets, it constantly wrong foots the audience as to um, how to interpret people's motivations and whether people are wholly innocent or wholly righteous in their anger and um you like throughout the film you really get the sense that these are really independent well-drawn characters and that the choices that they, they make have an impact not just on their own personal sort of character arcs but on the people around them and so it becomes this really um, fulfilling interesting drama about the how people can move towards forgiveness after such a tragic incident. And it's just um, powered by really great performances, particularly by Shogun as a, as a man trying to give up his rage. And um, yeah, I felt like it was a really strong drama and um, uh, really pleased to see Anshul Chauhan sort of um, move into a completely unfamiliar genre with a courtroom drama itself. The courtroom stuff um, was shot brilliantly because like the dialogues like uh you get long passages uh like a long take where you're watching a character sort of um contemplate what what a solicitor is saying and you can see like the moral arguments going through their heads but you can also have rapid fire dialogue where there's arguments and the camera's cutting between sort of different explosive um emotive moments 
and uh, it's just a visually dynamic film and uh, it's gripping all the way through with these really convincing characters. So yeah, it played at the indie forum section and this was like um, another one of the strong films I thought might have had a shot of winning the Japan Cuts Award, but didn't. All right. All right. Uh, all right. So that was uh, Jason's number two. My number two was a short film from Taiwan called Daddy to Be, directed by Can- Pan Kei-Yin. Ke- uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and this was actually, I enjoyed this so much that this was actually number one until I saw the film that ended up uh, getting the number one spot. But this was very high and a bit unusual for me because, like I said, I tend to exclude short films. But this was just absolutely fantastic, uh, partly because of how smart the comedy was. And just to give a, a, a bit of summary, it, it is essentially a film about a pregnancy scare. It's only 25, 20 to 25 minutes long. I forget exactly uh, how much. But uh, uh, but a, a uh, uh, what's his name? What's the main character name? So June uh, is just about to, to go for his mandatory military service, which I didn't know was a thing in Taiwan. Well, I guess it makes sense. Uh, and f- finds out that his girlfriend may be pregnant. Uh, they go through this whole pain to get a pregnancy, uh, a, a self-pregnancy stick. And then he finds out that she, she is pregnant. Uh, and then they decide to get an abortion, and lo and behold, it turns out that she actually wasn't pregnant. It was a false positive. Uh, but it's a very short and simple story, but the comedy, and especially the physical comedy about it, the acting, the directing, was just perfect. There was not a single second in this movie that felt that didn't land or that was not necessary. It's just a a, a very solid comedy. Well, I don't necessarily want to see a feature film Based on this short, I definitely want to see what this director can do with a feature-length film, a feature-length comedy, because I I feel like it could they could do a, a fantastic job delivering that to the world. But this was great. I mean, there's there's really not much to say. I thought it was just a solid, solid comedy. I don't know, Mary, if you uh, if you enjoyed it or not. Yeah, it's that that's probably the best way to summarize it. It's a really solid comedy. I don't think it does anything tremendously original. Um, there's uh, like the performances are really great. I think yes. he works well yes, with the cast. Fantastic chemistry between each other. The, the three, there are essentially three characters: the son June, who is uh, the possible father, his girlfriend, and his mother. That's it. Yeah, uh, and there's the whole like, like the scene with the urine cup is just fantastic. I'm sure we've seen that before in a film. <laughs> in every depiction of a pregnancy, t- a home pregnancy test. Women pee on the stick. I've never seen peeing on a cup and then putting the stick into the cup. I mean, it could be just a contrivance for the purpose of the film, but it didn't feel at all like one. It felt like just perfect, extremely natural. And then when he drinks it, it's 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 hilarious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I don't know. It's uh, disappointed that I can't say much more about the film, but it is like like we both said, it's just a a, a really tight, well done film. Like I said, not a second felt superfluous. Uh, and just everything from the directing, the editing, the the acting is just all added up to a, a, a fantastic comedy. And I think it, it justly won the short film award. I forget what the name of the award specifically was. Oh, no, it's an oh, honorable mention. Special mention. Okay. But okay, fair, still fair enough. Uh, still, I think good enough that, that it did. I, okay. I know a different film won that award, uh, perhaps deservedly so. But uh, But I thought this one, I'm glad that this at least got the special mention. All right, Jason. So I, that was my number two, and we're finally to the last stretch of this top five. So why don't you tell us what the 
Number one was for you. So I'm going to cheat now. I'm going to put two in my number one spot. I don't. I don't. I. I. You can say two, but I will only <laughs> listen to one of them, and I'll just shut my ears for the other one. One. Uh, one point five. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I think. I think. I think you're getting away with murder here. But oh, let's oh. let's let, let's hear what uh, what you have to say. So yeah, um, new religion by uh, Keishi Kondo, uh, Japanese horror film. And, okay, um, another one that I have not seen, unfortunately. Yeah, this one uh, really blew up last year on the festival circuit when it played at Fright Fest in London, and critics were raving about it. And so it was kind of like when it was submitted to the Osaka Asian Film Festival, I was definitely looking forward to it. It's one of my most anticipated um, films, and it definitely impressed me uh, because, like, uh, at this point in time, J horror is really like. Um, uh, stale genre there's like very few fresh ideas and there's a lot of recycling of tropes and um scares whereas new religion felt totally different totally um alien and um i think it comes from the fact that keishi kondo has a very strong visual style that he uses different sort of uh, visual filters he uses uh, bold use of colors like reds and um bold use of shadows as well to really um amp up the atmosphere of different scenes so it's not so yeah it's shot on a digital camera but everything has a distinctive look well, and I mean, most also films are shot on digital cameras nowadays yeah uh, but there's also kind of like um a, a sameness to the way a lot of films look whether it's due to color yeah, grading that's, that's true because they, it's it's really one or two camera brands that kind of dominate the industry yeah and like uh keishi kondo's um approach to shooting scenes is just completely different even if it's just the blocking of actors getting them to move slowly or in a menacing way so um essentially uh it's about uh, a young woman named miyabi she works as a call girl and um we uh, at the start of the film you uh, see that she's endured a tragedy where her daughter's fallen off uh the balcony of her apartment and it's broken up her marriage and she's haunted by the trauma of it and um, throughout the film she's surrounded by other characters who've just um endured traumatic situations violence at home so forth and they're uh, breaking under mental strain and it's also a, a, a bleak backdrop of like contemporary japan where the economy's kind of at a standstill um covid 19's really affecting uh the entertainment business badly and people are struggling and you've got miyabi's sort of fractured mindset um you're never quite sure if like uh everything's worse everything's exacerbated because of her um her more her inability to mourn or or if there is something supernatural until you get to the antagonist in the film which is this photographer who has this really strange presence um similar to sort of shinya tsukamoto i've um uh i don't know if you've seen a snake in june uh a long time ago it's kind of like a similar dynamic where you've got uh, a photographer manipulating his female model, essentially. And, Actually, no, uh, no, I, I've not seen that. Sorry, I, I was, I was thinking of the his main one, the uh, Tetsuo, Tetsuo, the Iron Man. Sorry, yeah, yeah I've, the, I, that's the only Tukamoto that I've seen. I don't think I've seen, I, at least, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think I've seen any other one from him. Okay, Snake in June might be uh, you might find interesting. All right. But uh, yeah, like the the whole atmosphere is apocalyptic, and it reminded me of Kyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse because you just feel like 
yet there's a supernatural element just off screen, just about to invade and make everything go terrible. But it's also like shot in real life urban sprawl of Nagoya. And so it's like a really unfriendly atmosphere to begin with anyway. And you're seeing these characters slowly break down under the weight of their sort of traumas and their, um, and like the horrible situations that they're in. And like the way that it's delivered visually and also the soundscape, because you've got this menacing electronic music and this hum that goes along with things. Like even if I didn't quite get like a lot of the imagery surrounding moths and rebirth and sort of terrorism, like it still created this very potent horror horror atmosphere that's completely different from a lot of Japanese horror movies I've watched, such as Oxhead Village at last year's New York Asian Film Festival, or any of the recent Juon movies, where it's just more of the same long-haired ghosts, hands popping out of the corner of a screen, shadows in the background. Yeah, this was something totally new and fresh and visually distinctive, so I really enjoyed uh, New Religion. And I think for you know, audiences looking for something different, this is definitely one to check out. Uh, what's, your, what's your other one? My other number one is probably similar to your number one, Swallow Flying to the South. Uh, no, no, no. But, oh, wow. Uh, okay. No, I, it, it did not make. I, I, I enjoyed, like I said, I probably deserved, literally, sorry, spoiler, it won the, the, the best short film award, right? Yes. Uh, and like I said, it deserved, it probably deserved it, but it just, to me, it felt to me more like an interesting experiment than a complete film, albeit a complete short film. I thought it was perfect, like the length and like the journey the character goes through and like the final release. I don't have anything end. negative to say, so just to make that clear. It just to me it just felt like it's it's an exercise. It's a it's a it's an it's a very an A plus exercise, but I don't know, something about it just didn't quite inspire me as as much as to include it to, to in my top five. That's not to say that it perhaps doesn't deserve to be there uh, on your list. Definitely, I like the main character's journey as she goes, as she sort of endures the harsh privations of a, a boarding school in Beijing and like the lonely, the intense loneliness, the regimented lifestyle, and um, like seeing the end of the Cultural Revolution. And I think it's quite interesting that it's been released now when um, Xi Jinping uh, is consolidating power in China and like people in China don't really like talking about the Cultural Revolution and all the bad things that went on in it. But yeah, yeah. It's your uh, although motion it, film. It, again, th- there are plenty of depictions from actual filmmakers in China. Uh, not recently, though. Uh, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not recently. But um, yeah, like to see this depicted in stop motion with um, like all these um, really detailed sets and uh, models and the fabrics of the clothes was quite affecting. But also like. The atmosphere that was created by the sounds of propaganda and um, children crying and so forth. I, yeah, it's very atmospheric and moving work. Absolutely, and, and you know the the, the art was uh, it was both clever because it's it's a style that allows kind of like South Park, the early season of South Park, where it's it's a feasible uh, art style to be to be done by only one person or a very small group of people. Uh, but it's also, you know, very creative, very beautiful, and used to great effect in a film like this. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, so the the, the one that uh, ended up being my number one, and it's the very last film that I watched from the festival, and it it actually it, it's it's early in the year, 
uh, but uh, it, it's it's a contender to be in my top of the year. We'll see how that how the year progresses, uh, how twenty twenty three progresses. Uh, but it is the Georgian film, a room of my own. Okay, yeah, that was a strong uh, film. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely adored this one. It uh, it caught me a little bit by surprise because, like I explained in private missions, I don't know why. I mean, it makes complete sense, but I did not consider Georgia to be part of Asia, but it is actually part of Georgia. Some Georgia, Asia, sorry. Somehow, I thought it would be in the Balkans. I don't know why I had that impression. That's embarrassing of me. But it is about uh, the two roommates, Tina and Maggie. Is that correct? Tina. And Maggie, yes. Uh, directed by, uh, by uh, Josep Soso Pliace uh, and starring Taki Mumladze and Mariam Kundace. Uh, the first one plays Tina and she was also a co-writer uh, for the film. Uh, and it, it talks about, it's it set, it set in, the, sort of in the height of COVID in Georgia. And my understanding is that the film took a while to complete because of the COVID uh, situation in Georgia. And it, it essentially... Uh, it's essentially two women who live under a a very traditional Eastern European part patriarchal system, and they are they try to move on with their lives and realize their dreams or escape and escape their past lives in some situation. In the case of Tina, by trying to move away from her abusive husband. In the case of uh, Maggie, from trying to move out of the country entirely and move to the U.S. Uh, but they always encounter problems in their in their journey again thanks to the aforementioned patriarchy uh especially Tina because i think she's the one who doesn't really end up escaping in the end uh whereas Maggie is able to actually get out of the country and i thought it was you know it did essentially it belongs to the same category of films as i think like in share i think it deals with a lot of s- similar issues or the same issues if uh if anything uh, but it does, in my opinion, it does so in a lot more, from a filmmaking point of view, a lot more masterfully and a lot more subtly. Uh, it's a fantastic drama. The acting is absolutely fantastic. Uh, the uh, the style of it is perhaps a little bit derivative in the sense that it looks like a lot of indie European films with, you know, a long takes and handheld camera and a relatively muted color palette and all that. But it is, it's effective, it works, and I thought it, it was just, it really drives the issues of the situation of women in georgia specifically but all over the place uh but it also it doesn't it doesn't preach it doesn't give you answers it doesn't specifically state what it is about other than uh, just describe the rich tapestry of the lives of two character characters from which you can derive additional messages and meanings yeah you you get like specific scenes where the boyfriend picks up Tina and you assume that they might be able to drive off happily together but he's tight-lipped and you know that Tina's had a really bad experience with the sort of a a potential mother-in-law and then you get scenes where she goes back to her family and you get all that fallout from her background and you find out that she can't escape sort of conservative social mores which dictate that she um, that she's in the wrong for uh, having you know left her husband essentially. That's right, and and I think uh, one uh, one thing that I really appreciated is that it it does it give it doesn't cop out from complex situation. Like we find out that you know the reason why she is trying to escape her past life is that she was stabbed by mm-hmm. her husband, which is 
of course, terrible. But then you find out that she was cheating on her husband. Okay, I'm not saying that that in the sense that she deserved to be stabbed or anything like that. But it, 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 she's not presented as and another thing that I didn't like about it, uh, like and share, for instance. She's not presented as as a immorally uh, unambiguous person who just has bad things happen to her. She's a morally ambiguous person. She steals. She lies. Of course, she cheated on her husband. And 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 that it's you know we still are able to appreciate the complex situation. It's never like in in most cases in the world, there's never a clear bad guy and a clear good guy, and we must side with the good guys. There are morally complex situations. I keep saying that phrase a lot, but that's really what's happening. And we have to you know choose the best outcome from a you know a non easy situation. I think that's what this film presents. It gives us non simple situations for both characters, but particularly Tina. I think. I think Tina is the clear protagonist of the film. It's, sometimes it, it presented as it's the story of Tina and Maggie, but it's really about Tina, I think. And the final scene kind of confirms that uh, uh, that assumption, uh, in a sense. So I absolutely love this film. It was definitely my favorite of the festi- of the festival. And it's unless you know unless something changes, it's it's likely to be in my top ten of the year if and when we get to that episode. Oh wow! Okay. It is, it is precisely the kind of drama that it's complex, it's, it's shot very well. It, like I said, if, even if a bit derivative in the sense that it looks like a lot of European indie dramas, but, you know, what you're going to do. I, I like the behind the scenes. Apparently it was shot in the main uh, actress's apartment during COVID. So Taki Mumlatz's actual apartment uh, with a very small crew and a, with a very small budget, which uh, certainly makes you appreciate the mastery which went... Uh, which went into creating this film despite the limitations. I, I, I yeah, my, uh, like the only sort of contrivance I found with it was like the sex scene between Tina and uh, Maggie, but um, the rest of it was strong. And uh, so some some gratuitous nudity. That I, I will agree yeah. with you on that. Some of the nudity was gratuitous, but I think it's part of like again, it's part of that sort of like indie European style where people prefer naturalism. Like when you're your home. There's no reason why you you will not take your shirt off in a certain situation, right? And I think that's kind of like the, so it is consistent in that sense, but it is a bit gratuitous. A lot of it was a bit gratuitous. Yeah. Um, I do think that that uh, the the relationship between Tina and Maggie was very necessary because it 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 needed to showcase uh, Tina's uh, codependent personality. She was caught dependent yeah, on the first massive contrasts in ambitions and backgrounds. Absolutely, absolutely. Like Tina was codependent on her first husband, as it's it's ever stated, but you it's implied by the fact that she drove out of college to marry him. Uh, then was dependent entirely dependent on her boyfriend, uh, and then uh, was sort of like dependent on uh, uh, Maggie, who also ends up abandoning her. And perhaps by the end, we get the sense that okay, maybe she can actually be Meg more like Maggie by the fact that she accepts another roommate uh, yeah. at the end of the film, or maybe the cycle is repeated and that she just got to become dependent on this new roommate. It, it, you never know how it's going to end. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so that's that was um, my number one of the festival. Okay, a strong selection. Absolutely. So why don't we go over a bit the the award? Excuse me. The award list for for the Osaka Film uh, Asian Film Festival. So we mentioned, uh, of course, uh, some of the while we we're talking about our films. But why don't we give a, a, a concrete list? So Jason, do you want to do that? So uh, the Grand Prix was won by Like and Share, the Indonesian movie. Uh, most promising talent went to Kaiko for Bad Education, 
which is and that like was the a, director, I believe, right? Yes. How I did not see this movie, so how how was it? Uh it's a madcap comedy with chaotic development to the story, as you get these three students who are about to graduate and they dare each other to do crazy things and they end up picking fights with gangsters and police officers and uh, kidnapping um, a sex worker and like um it's it, I, I found it wasn't able to sustain the laughs especially towards the ending where there's a big confrontation with like a, a godfather figure and the themes of loyalty and friendship are debated and tested and it just becomes too talky and long drawn out but like the initial the initial burst of energy and like the first maybe half of the film was a lot of fun. Nothing too sophisticated, but really well presented. And um, uh, yeah, I, f- um, I think Kaiko is a very talented director based on this. All so, right. Uh, a promising talent. The award was deserved. Yeah. The ABC TV award went to Over My Dead Body, which is a crowd pleaser of a Hong Kong movie. Essentially, people living in an upmarket apartment block. Uh, trying to avoid taking responsibility for a corpse that um, appears on their doorsteps. And you've got an ensemble cast playing a wide variety of characters. It's very, uh, I find it um, solid, kind of middle of the road. Um, It's the sort of thing that could appeal to a wide audience. Um, Which, again, makes sense for the ward that it won. Yeah, it could definitely, you know, you can look, watch it on TV at nine o'clock at night and it's not going to offend anybody. Uh, Yakushi Pearl Awards um, went to Lu Xiaofen, The Day Off. Yeah, which I, I talked about it in my top five. Yep. Uh, the Japan Cuts Award went to When Morning Comes, I Feel Empty by Yuho Ishibashi. So I've mentioned it a couple of times saying it wouldn't have been my first choice because I felt there were strong films in the indie forum section. Uh- I it's somewhat similar to you are still there after the rain in, in the sort of like they both shared like an absurdist uh somewhat experimental style but when morning comes I feel empty I found it a little bit lacking in 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 sort of like in the same in creativity let's just say it like that it's got it's anchored by some strong performances especially Erica Karata where when she eventually opens up as to what's dogging her character you know you you do actually find yourself moved by that scene <sighs> yeah i wrote down i forget what i wrote down um I, like i wrote down the whole point is that she quit her job feels very anticlimactic like to me maybe i'm being a little bit facetious here uh and i understand the i understand what the point of the film is i let just make it clear but in the end for we wait 50 minutes because it's not a it's one of those uh like 70 minute film we wait 60 minutes the most dramatic thing that happens is like a curtain rail falls off wall (laughs) yeah exactly so i don't know it it, like that's that's what i wrote like i get i get the point of the film the 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 pressure but to me it just felt like this should have been a short this should have been a short and it could have had a much deeper impact and i'll I'll, that's all i'll say about it it's a solid film, but um, what I took away from it is it offers a snapshot of sort of Japanese youth and sort of uh, like the main character seemed to be inspired by Mari Takahashi, who is a young woman who committed suicide after being overworked by the Denso advertising firm. And um, there's a surprising lack of um, sort of um, engagement in politics and society from young people because there's disillusionment 
like political participation is down and there's a sense that society won't change so people feel like it's better to seek out narrow friendship groups or to just avoid challenges and to find a comfortable place in life and that's what the film spoke to uh as far as i'm concerned sure yeah yeah i think that will resonate with audiences around the world because we're seeing similar things in europe as well north america i but like other films in the indie forum category uh had stylistic approaches or uh qualities to the story that left more to think about and engage with uh, this is just a fine film so yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's a solid film um all right so what's next a hosen short film award went to swallow flying to the south uh hosen special mention went to daddy to be and the audience award went to day off all right and we we talked about all of them in my top five or in your top five. Yeah. All right. So I think that is it in regard to the Osaka Asian Film Festival. Unless you have any closing closing thoughts that you'd like to impart before we move on into our news section. Uh, uh, this year is a strong festival. And um, yeah, hopefully we're able to cover it next year. I would agree with that. Like I had, like I said, a room of my own was the clear top for me. Uh, and then I would have to say I probably struggled with the other four. Like they were probably in a different day. I would probably rotate them uh, and uh, choose maybe choose a sw- switch up one or two. But the top film was definitely like a clear winner for for me, of course. All right. So now that we're done with our main discussion uh, regarding the Osaka Asian Film Festival, we can jump into our new section. A sec. <laughs> Since, uh, since our last episode. So we have a bit of news, but obviously we're not going to cover everything that's happened in Asian cinema, but we'll talk about what's caught our attention. And the first item is a bit personal for us, and it, it is the closure of the V Cinema website. Uh, so we knew this for a while. In fact, we knew it in the last episode, but it was not made public yet. It was made public. Uh, do you remember the date of the post in the website? Oh, I can't remember. I mean, we can probably find out. The website is still up, but will not be up for long. I've Try to archive it in the day back, uh, in the way back machine. Sorry. Uh, so, yeah, so the post was posted on 20, the last day of February, so 28th of February. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the, the website will be up for maybe a couple more months, but then eventually will shut down. The articles will be online, like I said, on archive.org. I'll also have started the, the process of uh, archiving my own reviews on the heroic. Uh, website on the heroic purgatory website so if you go to our website which by the way has a new url instead of being heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com now it's just heroic-purgatory.com which is probably a little bit easier of course the links still work all the old links will still redirect to the right url but if you're just typing it straight into the browser you you can remove the .blogspot part of it and if you go to our website, there's a a new page that it says John's Review Archive. And right now there's only two, but I'll keep adding these as you know as as I have time from from my uh, V Cinema archive. So at least they're in a in a convenient uh, place to add. And you said, Jason, that you've archived your reviews as well. Yeah, it's um, I've uh, at least put them in drafts. But over recent years, especially with Osaka Asian Film Festival coverage, what I would do is um, after. Um, reviews were posted on V Cinema. I post them on my own website as well. So, yes. Although, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
didn't you just rewrite the reviews for your own website? Or is it are so, they the same reviews? Because I, I got the impression that they were different, which is I applaud you for your work. I would never just do that. I would just copy and paste. Typically, um, I would sort of like my own personal blog. I would just like splurge everything out on there and then uh, rewrite it for um, V Cinema. Um, oh, I, I see. I see what you mean. Try to sharpen it up because, uh, yeah, higher standards there. <laughs> uh, of course. Uh, yeah, writing for an editor is not the same as writing for uh, for yourself. Uh, I know I know for a fact that I don't scrutinize my own writing when I don't think there's going to be anyone else looking at it first, which I probably should do. But and also that's why I opted to write shorter reviews, so I won't. So the editing will be easier for uh, uh, for the festival, and I'm because I'm a slow writer in general. Yeah, like having John Barra actually look over articles and just point out things has uh, helped make me sharper or at the very least try to cut down on long meandering sentences absolutely absolutely uh but yeah, anything anything you'd like to say about b cinema i mean I, we've mentioned it before we've certainly done it due service in our uh in our website it, it it's a, it's you know uh, I, I was writing reviews before but they were generally not uh not to the quality that i think i wrote for v cinema uh, so, and I think that certainly definitely helped me uh, become a better reviewer, uh, at least a better writer, in, a writer of reviews. Um, and what, what about you, Jason? It was definitely one of those sort of foundational websites where you first get onto the internet and you first get involved in the Asian film community. And it was there, it had, the, it had a great podcast, it had a great set of reviewers, a diverse set of reviewers with different specialties and backgrounds. So you're always learning something. We've mentioned this, I'm pretty sure we have, but just to reiterate that our, the start of our podcast, was, the goal was to recreate the V Cinema podcast. That was the sort of like the initial goal. And in fact, briefly, we even considered naming it V Cinema, but we thought it would just be easier to, you know, give it its own name uh, and, uh, you know, its own identity, but still clearly, uh, without any doubt, inspired by the V Cinema website and the V Cinema podcast, which unfortunately it didn't last very long and it's not even easy to find you can find one or two episodes online but uh it's the the sound the the sound files have been lost to the oh, wow. the, the, the the dark depths of the internet not even the internet archive happened yeah i don't think i think when they stopped nobody took uh, the time to properly archive it unfortunately i mean perhaps someone has the files somewhere but i i've not been able to find them online yeah, it's it's uh you know it was a shock to um even though the site hadn't been updated it was still a shock to learn that it was closing down and it, it's a shame. I've had filmmakers um tell me uh like how much they're gonna miss it. So yeah, it's a very influential website and um, absolutely absolutely proud to have been a part of it. I may not have been the best writer, but at least I contributed something to it. And um yeah um just thankful to John Barra and the others who um helped maintain the sites and the social media links and um yeah just uh helped make the asian film community stronger through v cinema absolutely absolutely all right so i think again please check it out uh while it's still up uh check on archive.org of course the wayback machine uh the the article should be there in perpetuity unless something happens to that as well uh, but some things are not going to work as well like i think some of the images probably won't load correctly etc but uh at least it's somewhere where the the main thing, the text, will be will survive. Yeah. Uh, but all right, I think I think we've uh, certainly said enough about that. 
Uh, the next news item is, of course, the Oscars, which happened uh, while we before since our last episode. And the reason why they're not worth this year is because the majority of awards were won by an arguably Asian American, uh, not arguably, but a, like an Asian American film, and that is Everything Everywhere All at Once. The uh, Immigrant <laughs> Story. Yes, and of course, it, I have made my feelings about this clear in our last episode, where when we talked about our top, uh, our top films of the year, and of course, like I always do, I couldn't help but express my opinion where I put it as the most overrated film of the year. And I, I still think that. I have not changed my mind. Of course, to be fair, I have not seen it again. I, I, I loathe the idea to see it again, but I will not dismiss the possibility that perhaps I would change my mind if I saw it again. But as of now, I still do not have no desire to watch it again. And just to be clear, because I call it overrated, that does not mean I don't think it's a good film. I, th I think it has merits. It certainly has merits for originality. I just think it does not deserve all the praise that it gets. It certainly did not deserve the Oscars, uh, some of the Oscars. Uh, there were better films. And again, as much as I love Michelle Yeoh, she did not deserve uh, to win over Kate, um, uh, Kate Blanchett for Tar. I mean, that was just a, a much better performance. Uh, but, oh well, uh, everything, everyone all at once won a bunch of awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best uh, Supporting Actor, uh, Actress, sorry, Best, no, Supporting Actor and Actress, actually. Uh, best Screenplay, yeah. which is how it won over uh, a Banshees of Finish Sharing is a mystery, but I guess <laughs> it did. Uh, and, and it's one of those other films where it has the subtlety of a brick in the face. Uh, <laughs> that is to say, none none whatsoever um anyway i think i think i rambled enough is, is there anything that you would like to say about it yeah it's not a personal favorite of mine i probably didn't watch it in a my in the right mindset because i was ill um did you watch it in the theaters or or at home at home i watched it in the theater okay that must have been even more exhausting <laughs> uh, yes i wanted to get out of there halfway through the film <laughs> as it's shaking you by the shoulders shouting laugh laugh that's that's the, the there are i think the humor and that's i was not surprised when i saw that the same uh directors had also done um a swiss army man okay which again much like everything 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 everywhere all at once uh is an interesting film it has interesting ideas original and i cannot take that away from them they're certainly in in a world where originality seems to disappear every day, they seem to be sticking to their guns, and that's that's certainly admirable. Uh, their sense of humor is just awful, just terrible. It, it's so childish <laughs> and so forced. Yes, and, and again, I'm, I'm I like childish guys. Like I mentioned, I will watch South Park. I will I will watch something with fart jokes in it. That's not that's not the problem. It's childish in the sense that it doesn't really understand. Even the basic concept. I don't. Know. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't want to sound. I don't want to make this into a hate. Uh, a hateful uh, a hate rant for for it. But it is just. I was surprised that it won the Oscars. I knew that it would win some, being as like the critical darling of the year. Uh, but I did not think it would, would win like best actress. To me, that seems to be like crazy. But oh well. Yeah, I'd like uh, like happy for the cast and crew and the fans. Um, you know, I'm. Uh, I'll never watch it again. Probably. So whatever. I best best actor, of course, went to Brendan Fraser for uh, the whale, which I finally watched. I did mention that it was the movie that I was looking forward to watching a lot, and it, it, 
I would actually say that 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 is an underrated movie. Uh, sorry, I'll talk about it in our media consumption, in our cultural consumption section. But that won Best Actor, uh, and then Best Who won Best Foreign Film? I don't know if you remember. No. All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. Ah, okay. That's that's why. And uh, also won also won Best Original Score uh, and Best Cinematography. Uh, I don't know about score. I think the cinematography perhaps was deserved. Best international fe- feature, at least, I don't know if I've seen of the Avdomenis, but I'm I'm happy about that. I think we both rated it very highly. I it was even yes. in my top ten. It wasn't in your top ten, but I, if I remember correctly, you did rate it quite highly. Yes, it was very impressive. All right, all right. Uh, so that's about the Oscars. Another one, another award, uh, major award ceremony, which I think you brought to my attention was the Asian Film Award. So would you like to sort of list uh, the top awardees in that in that uh, award ceremony? So, Best Film went to Drive My Car, Best Director went to Hirokazu Koreeda for Broker, Best Actor went to Tony Leung for Where the Wind Blows, Best Actress went to Tang Wei for Decision to Leave, Best Screenplay went to Park Chang-wook for Decision to Leave, Lifetime Achievement Award was given to Sammo Hung. Are you surprised that uh, Park Chang-wook did not win the directing award? I d- uh, could it be that they're just trying to split the bets? Could be, yeah. That said, I haven't seen Broker, just based on the the buzz around it, which is what I often do for awards. It did not seem to me, unless you've read differently, to make that much of an impression in the at least inter- international uh, critics scene. But maybe, maybe I'm just not reading in the right places. I said it seemed like interest dropped off after the Cannes Film Festival. It yeah, did absolutely. Go on- release across america and did, the uk did it win but, anything it can uh i, I don't, don't think so i think so did um did song kang ho win best actor maybe yeah i'm i'm you know what i'm not gonna look it up let's just leave our listeners uh in a state of perpetual ambiguity <laughs> uh shouting right. at the podcast <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> absolutely uh so that was the uh that was the asian uh Film Awards, which uh, took place not not too too long ago before recording this podcast, this episode. Uh, one award ceremony that hasn't happened quite yet is the Hong Kong Film Awards, wh- whose ceremony is happening just a few days, a couple of weeks as of the time of recording on April 16. But the nominations have been released. And I don't think I recognized any of the nominations, except for a couple of overlaps uh, between that and the Osaka Asian Film Festival, like The Narrow Road and Sunny Side of the Street, uh, yeah. which neither of which I've seen, but uh, they were at least recognizable. Oh, Warriors of the Future is on Netflix. Okay. Uh, it's uh, If you've ever played the video game Vanquish, uh, essentially um, Warriors of the Future. <laughs> the sparring partner is uh, Courtroom Drama. Um, which received the most nominations. Yes, sixteen, I believe, which is quite quite a lot. Interestingly, uh, but yeah, so you know, I'm sure in our next episode, if it's recorded after the 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 actual ceremony takes place, I'm sure we'll announce the awards, uh, the award the uh, films that receive the their respective awards. But we can move on to our next uh, uh, film, to our next news item, and uh, this is one of yours, Jason. It's the Japan. The online Japan Film Festival. Yeah, so these are six free indie films um, that audiences can stream on Japan Film Festival Plus website. 
Uh, we'll obviously provide links on the website, on the Hero Purgatory website and social media. I'm speculating, but I'm sure you've posted it on Twitter already. Yeah, not quite yet. Oh, okay. Um, six new films were added um, a couple of weeks ago. On the edge of their seats, drive into the night in the distance. Um, so really good uh, or highly rated dramas. Uh, I've, to be honest, I've only watched On the Edge of Their Seats and I interviewed the director, Hideo Jojo. Um, you've also got Shiver, a music documentary about a famous taiko uh, troupe, big drums on an island, experiencing fearsome weather, directed by Toshiaki Tosoda. Um, what can you do about it? A documentary about the director and his uncle who has autism and it tackles social care and um, mental health. And a documentary called A Little Girl's Dream, uh, which follows a girl from elementary school to um, becoming a vet in a small town. So these six films are free to stream. All right. Yes. Yes, of course. And it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, we've already posted, uh, posted about this before, but it is uh, the updated roster of films. Yes. Uh, all right. And then the last news item is that, unfortunately, uh, composer Ryuchi Sakamoto has passed away. Yeah. It, uh, we are, well, the world found, yeah, it was announced on um, uh, only a couple of hours ago. Just before recording, that I found yeah, out. He, so. The actual death was a few days ago, as of the time yeah. of recording. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a real shock because Ryuichi Sakamoto's had um, long-lasting influence on films and music since the days of Yellow Magic Orchestra to um, his scores for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and The Last Emperor. Would it be wrong to say that that's perhaps his best known in the West? The score, even though the film is not that well known, the score for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is his best uh, his best known score in the west it probably is but i f- i feel like merry christmas mr lawrence is well known as well as it's definitely put on british television quite a lot is it a subject oh. matter i mean it could be I, it just in my circles i have not encountered many people who know it but um, maybe i'm wrong who knows but the score is certainly more no i haven't seen it used in other context a uh, context uh, as a, just as a, as a, as a score, uh, by itself. Um, yeah, yeah he, so it will be definitely a big, uh, big goal. He was, I think, I think he might've scored all of Nagisa Oshima's later film, did he? From, I'm not sure. I think he also did, uh, Gohato or Taboo. He did The Revenant and he also did Snake Eyes, which was a surprise to me, the Nicolas Cage film. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, he was certainly, a, a, a like a household name. Uh, yes, he did Gohato Tabu, um, Tabu, which was released in 1999 and was Nagisa Oshima's last film. A, a, a sort of a favorite of mine. I've mentioned that before. Uh, but yeah, he, was, he did a lot of West. I didn't, I didn't know that he did The Re- Re- Revenant. I always sort of confuse him with uh, uh, Joe Hisaishi. For some reason, I kind of blend those two in my mind. So I'm never sure if a particular score was by Ryuchi Sakamoto or Joe Hisaishi. I, I think they have similar styles uh use of piano but um yes sakimoto yes. uses a lot more electronica I find. yes yes all right uh all right so uh may he rest in peace we'll certainly remember his work very fondly and and i am almost i'm pretty certain that you will uh come up in our future episodes of heroic purgatory royal space force the wings of honey amis one of the best schools ever all right <laughs> okay all right, uh, so that is it for our news uh, segment. Like I said, I'm sure there are more, but uh, you know, those are sort of like the things that caught our attention while we were away. Now we can jump into our cultural consumption, uh, and of course, we've been—it's been over a month since our last 
excuse me, since our last episode, but why don't you give us the highlights, just a few items, Jason, that uh, you've been busy with and have uh, made an impression on your personal cultural consumption? Yeah, um, I really enjoyed Hong Kong Actioners Outlaw Brothers um, with Yukari Oshima, uh, Dragons Forever with Yun Biao, Jackie Chan, and Samo Hung. Um, yes, that, madam. Is, is that the one where Samo Hong plays a disabled person? No. <laughs> no, that's Heart of Dragon. That is Heart of Dragon, right? Yeah, okay. Ah, what's the one where Samo Hung plays an undercover cop looking for a gay serial killer? I don't know. Okay, we'll cover that <laughs> in a future episode. Whoops, what was he thinking? Um, uh, yes, madam, with Cynthia Rothrock and Michelle Yeoh. Um, in Line of Duty 4 with Cynthia Khan. Uh, Mad Detective, the Johnny Toe film. Um, non uh, Hong Kong movies. Uh, I watched Fritz Lang's M for the first time. Oh, a great film. It's been forever. I need to revisit it, but a uh, great film. Absolutely. Also, also surprisingly prescient about the rise of, Nazi, of fascism in Germany. Yeah, but yeah, like the camera work, everything about it is so fresh. And you got a great performance by Peter Lorre as well. Yeah, I, Fritz Lang is even his later American noir films are some of my favorite noir films. Of course, I'm a big fan of noir, but. Yeah, uh, not an underrated. I wouldn't say underrated director because I think he does receive the the appreciation that he deserves. But Based on Metropolis, yes, he definitely even for his later films. But it's an under discussed director, I would say, in especially in the noir scenes because he's just solid in almost every film that is done. Perhaps, perhaps the only disappointment in his career might be the later films that he did when he returned back to Germany. I, yeah. I I think he can he has sort of like lost his his edge at that point, but otherwise very solid director. I think it's it's one of those films where, with the benefit of hindsight, you can look at the faith based in authorities and the law and just say, oh well, that's not going to turn out very yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I was very impressed. It's my first time watching it, and uh, yeah, just great um, seeing the police and the criminal underworld and this um, serial killer story. Uh, enjoyed the Sydney Lumet film Q and A with Nick Nolte as um insane Irish American cop going around New York trying to rub out people. Um, uh, the BBC series Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So I've read the book. I've watched the Thomas Alfredson film, but I'd never watched the original BBC, um, Alec Guinness series. So how does it compare but- to the film? I've, I've seen the film. Uh, it's been ages and I actually did review the film for my blog. I actually thought the BBC, I, I enjoyed the BBC series a lot. Okay. I think it's because it has time to be expansive and to sort of drag you through a dreary atmosphere of like 70s, 80s Britain and Cold War paranoia. Um, Sunset Boulevard, which was a first time watch for me. I really enjoyed that one. Oh yeah, it's a great film. Uh, Masaki Kobayashi's Kaiden and Kinji Fukusaku's Samurai Reincarnation. So those okay. are the films that no, stood out to me. A, a, a sort of a cult classic, uh, especially for Tarantino. I, I was not never a big fan of it, but it's certainly a, a very, very notable film. Sunset Boulevard. No, I've talked about Samurai Reincarnation. Oh, Samurai Reincarnation. Uh, it felt a bit silly at times to to me, but yeah, yeah, definitely solid uh, as a as a as a fantasy action samurai film. And it just ends abruptly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So is that, is that it for your cultural consumption? So yeah, uh, in terms of like video games, I finished playing Muramasa Rebirth on a PlayStation Vita. Um, just uh, 
playing around with Vagrant Story, Breath of Fire 4, um, but I'm going to move on to Persona 3 Portable on the PSP, and I'm finally going to invest in a Steam Deck. All right. And uh, that'll be my uh, video gaming for the rest of the year, I think. You can play all the Personas in the Steam Deck. That's what I've been playing them. Uh, yeah, I've got them on, like, original handheld consoles already. Uh, all right. Yeah, I also have some video games in the in the persona in the persona in the uh, in my culture consumption section. Notably, Portal Two, which I thought it was a very very interesting game. Not not much once you beat it, but I I really enjoyed the sort of like the the puzzle aspect to it. Uh, and also like I, I I really appreciate the sense of humor. It has Stephen Merchant as one of the characters. Yeah, uh, and J.K. Simmons, and it, it is it, even though it is primarily known for its puzzles, the story was quite enjoyable as well. Uh, it's really funny, a uh, very, very like typical uh, British Monty Python esque sense of humor. It's it's a game you could play in co op, and I remember playing it with my sister. I never tried that, so uh, so maybe I should look that up. But I don't know who anybody who I would play it with. Uh, preferably someone who will try and sabotage you for maximum comedic effect. Yeah, I know that there are. You can play custom made puzzles, like you can get puzzles and play them. Uh, and I tried some of them, but I, I I haven't delved too much into that world. I mostly played the main campaign, uh, and that's uh, and that's it. So that's that's one of them. I played. I got the new Harry Potter game, Hogwarts Legacy, okay. and it's very good. But it hasn't. I haven't spent that much time with it. It it sort of. It's essentially if you wanted Skyrim, but in the Harry Potter world, in the Hogwarts world, that's essentially what the game is. So it's an open okay. world RPG uh, with, uh, you know, with, I thought, very good mechanics, uh, interesting story. I, actually, I would say the story has not attracted me so far to the point that I am so far. I'm still relatively early on, but I'd say if you like RPGs and if you like the Harry Potter universe, it's definitely, it's definitely a game to consider. Well, I like RPGs, but I don't have any regard for Harry Potter. So. I, I have, I, I don't know, I, I think I've admitted this, that Harry Potter world is sort of a guilty pleasure for me. I've read the books two or three times, and I don't think they're very good books, but they're books that I can read back to back. I don't know if it's something to do with my childhood, uh, but I find them very enjoyable as a guilty pleasure. Yeah, when Harry Potter became big, I had just started Haruki Murakami, so I was just I'm the, I'm the wrong age. Are you talking about the the films? The books. Okay, interesting. Uh all right, so there's that. I also played the uh Halo Infinite, so the last uh I've just the campaign in the Halo franchise. It's not as good as the original trilogy, but it was it was alright. It was enjoyable. Should have uh, ended with free. Yeah, the story at least. But it's a, it's a moneymaker, so there's no way they would end it with that. Oh, the uh, Covenant are back again? Oh no. It's actually not the Covenant anymore. Like, the Covenant is... Uh, the main antagonist is a split... Is a split faction of the Covenant. Led by a brute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, so there's that. What else? Oh, I fight... Like I, okay, like I spoiled uh, a little while before, I watched The Whale... Uh, starring Brendan Fraser uh, and directed by Darren Aronofsky, uh, Aronofsky. Uh, and I thought it was very good. I, I it would have had I seen it before our top episode, it would have certainly made it into my top ten of the year. And I thought, if anything, I thought it was a bit underrated 
in the sense that what's gotten most praise is Brendan Fraser's performance, while the rest, the other aspects of the film have perhaps fallen a little bit behind. And I think it's just a fantastic film all around. The one criticism that I I would say, and this is not a minor criticism, is that the film is based on a play and it doesn't really add that much to the play. Like the entire film films very much, feels very much like a play. And this was especially disappointing coming from Darren Aronofsky, who is a very cinematic director. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't think you, if you somehow were have, had access to the play and watched the play version of the film, you wouldn't necessarily get anything less. Like it, it would feel a lot the same. Uh, all right. So there's that. What else? What else? Oh, I watched the uh, a TV adaptation of The Last of Us. Okay. How is it? I thought they did a fantastic job. Have you played the video game, Jason? No. Okay. I've not either. I've only seen the show. And I thought they did a fantastic job, a great show. Everything about it, the, the things that they adapted from the video game, the thing that they changed, the acting, the directing, uh, the style. I thought it was fantastic. I absolutely hated the ending. Okay. Uh, uh, the ending is extremely anticlimactic, extremely disappointing. It feels like a giant... F you to the face of, of, the, uh, of the audience. And I, I was planning on actually playing the game after the show because the game is receiving a re-release. But because the ending is the same in the show as it is in the video game, I, I have no intention of playing. It feels like it builds up to a giant finale and then he just says, nope, we're just not going to do it and we're just going to go back and, and end it without giving any resolution whatsoever. Yeah. And I, I am not, because of it, I am not looking forward to season two, unless they somehow change uh, the, the, the season two to somehow, like, build up on season one instead of just following the second game, which is also disappointing, in my opinion. Uh, what else? What else? Oh, I watched the entire series of The, Expan- the Expanse. Okay. Uh, also another fantastic show, and I'm a big fan of science fiction, and this is a, a great science fiction show. Uh, it ended. It ended on season six, and I'm st- there's more books that continue the story. I'm debating whether or not I wanna, I wanna read the books, but uh, but I might because I, I absolutely love the show. If you're if you're looking for a very good science fiction TV series, modern science fiction TV series, The Expanse is great. And another science fiction series that I watched that is only that that season that only has season one, and the season two of which was released uh, is going to be released soon is Severance. I got an Apple TV trial just to watch it. Uh, it's such a fantastic show. Just to give a to give a summary, it's it's it revolves around this mysterious biotech company whose employees have to sign a contract to separate their brains such that they don't remember anything that they do while in the in the in the building of the company. Uh, and I strongly recommend it. It it is fantastic. It is actually. Uh, 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 Somewhat inspired by Portal. Oh, no, no, somewhat, uh, uh, not Portal, somewhat inspired by the Stanley Parable. Okay, it's a video game I never played. It's another video game uh, that, uh, it sort of like plays on like the meta narrative of video games. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, but that is it for my cultural consumption. Uh, of course, there are more, but I, I think these are the ones that I probably enjoyed the most throughout, uh, uh, throughout this, uh, throughout our break, the highlights. I think this was a, a 
a longer episode than usual, so I'm going to have to do a great job editing it. Uh, but is there anything else that you'd like to close with, Jason, before we end this episode? Um, yeah, just like to thank everybody who's uh, stuck with us uh, so far, and uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. And uh, we'll get season four of Heroic um, Purgatory underway once uh, all the ideas are set in place and uh, research material gathered. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, we will be a great episode if uh, with what we have a great season with uh, what you have in mind. Okay. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that is it for our episode. Uh, if you have any question, questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, please let us know and comment on our uh, new website, heroic-purgatory.com. Uh, or you can talk us. Uh, or, or you can talk to us on Twitter uh, at uh, heroic purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.